you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12. We've been working our way through Luke from chapter 1, verse 1, and we are at chapter 12 now. Those of you that have been here since chapter 1, verse 1 might be encouraged to know that we are officially at the halfway point now. And so uh, hopefully it's been profitable. Um, And uh, I know I feel like uh, sometimes we're rushing through, but I feel like... um, It's been profitable nonetheless. And so we pick up now at Luke chapter 12 at verse 1. In the meantime, meaning in the meantime, following the events of chapter 11, which we'll talk about in just a minute. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the Word of God. May He bless its reading this morning. At the end of the last chapter, last Sunday morning, we saw that Jesus confronted the sin of the Pharisees and the scribes. And in doing so, he didn't pull any punches. He didn't hold back. He didn't dance around or mince words. He got right to the point, right to the heart of their sin with brutal and penetrating honesty. And I can remember, even as I was thinking about that that this week, that when you read the Gospels, Jesus talks so differently to different people. To those, like we saw at the end of Luke chapter 11, it was a spiritual haymaker. He just laid them out with clarity about, this is your sin, and it is sending you to hell. But to others, he was kind, and he was patient, and he was tender. And I remember in college thinking, how do you know what to say to who? How do you know when to be turning over tables and driving out cattle from from the the temple? And when do you know uh, just to sit beside the well and ask this woman for a cup of water? How how do you know as a pastor what to to do? And I remember one of my professors said, go back and read the Gospels. And notice who Jesus is tender to and notice who he is harsh with. And that was very helpful because what you see is again and again and again, Jesus has his harshest, most direct words for the spiritual leaders of Israel. For they weren't spiritual leaders at all. They were, in fact, hypocrites. They claimed to know God and to be able to bring others to God, but they themselves were far from God. And Jesus had no tolerance for that. At the same time, the scribes and the Pharisees did not take kindly to Jesus' condemnation of their lives. So they began now constantly pelting him with questions, constantly berating him and coming to him in the hopes that they could trip him up 
and therefore invalidates his criticism of their life. The result, Luke tells us in verse 1, is that so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were now trampling over one another as they sought to get the Jesus. They wanted to know, is he really of God? They saw the leadership uh, uh, criticizing him and trying to ask him question after question, and it generated all kinds of interest from people who were genuinely looking for a Savior, who genuinely wanted to know God and to be known by him. Remember what Luke told us back in chapter 9. That at this point, Jesus has set his face, his face like flint towards Jerusalem. In other words, he was purposed. He was determined. He was committed in his heart to go to the cross just as his father had planned for him to do. He had with fierce determination put it in his mind to now begin his journey to his death that he might rescue sinners from death. That's what the cross is all about. We just sang it over and over and over again. It is about God pouring out his wrath upon his son. And that's why if you've been to the movies recently or you've been there in the past, a movie like the Son of God or the Passion can show you the Roman method of execution known as crucifixion, but it can never show you the cross of Christ. It can never show you the cross of Christ. Because movies want to get caught up in, in the brutality of crucifixion and therefore they miss the point. They miss the point completely. They think the nails in the hands and the crown of thorns being pushed down on the head and the agony of all is where the story is. That's not where the story is. That's not where the story is. Have you ever wondered why the gospel writers make nothing of that? Luke will just tell us they crucified him. And that's it. Why? Well, well, why do they not describe the agony that we seem so, so consumed with contemplating? It's not wrong to think about that, but the gospel writers know that's not, that's not what the story is about. The cross of Christ is not about the crucifixion. It is about salvation that comes, only comes as Jesus hangs in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve, experiencing hell for us on the cross. So that we who are sinners and deserve hell might escape it and have forgiveness in life. The cross was the climax of all that Jesus did and said. All of his humbling and taking on flesh. He who was perfectly righteous counted as the worst and most terrible sin before God for us. That's what Jesus said he was setting himself towards in chapter 9. This is where he's determined to go. A place that none of us would ever choose to go, let alone set our face like flint towards. But Jesus went because that was the will of his heavenly father. That was why he came in the first place. But what Jesus also knows is that as he has as he has zeroed in with laser-like focus on the will of God leading to the cross resistance to his mission will progressively get worse. Just as Jesus was intent on fulfilling God's will for the salvation of sinners, so Satan was also intent on stopping him. And when he fails to stop you with everything else, he always, always ends up using brute force, physical violence, sometimes even death. And we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But what here, here what we need to say is that this threat is not just towards Jesus. He knows that it's also now towards his disciples. And he's got to prepare them for that. 
He's got to tell them this is what's coming. He's got to get them ready. So though the crowds are swarming to him, they're, they're, they're trampling one another. Jesus grabs his disciples to himself and he stares them in the face. And he says, this is what you need to know. This is what's most important. This is what you need to be ready for. Despite the difficulties that are coming, that you might be faithful. And today we stand on the opposite of the cross. It's not, it's not before us, it's behind us. And yet, even as we stand back looking, stand looking back towards the cross, we also are looking towards the return of Jesus. That means for us there is an increased threat level. Midnight is coming and then the dawn of a new day with Christ's return. And what that means is, though Satan is defeated, he is still raging. He is still raging against the people of God to do the most damage he possibly can. And it is our responsibility as God's people not just to hold the line. That's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to advance, advance, advance. To pick up that banner of the gospel. Just as in the movies, you see the guy leading the charge, carrying the flag, and he gets shot. What happens? Some dude just picks up the flag and keeps running. And that's what, that's what we're called to do as well. So though saints that have come before us die, we pick up that gospel banner. We pick up that saving message of Jesus Christ and we press on despite difficulty, despite pain, despite suffering, because sinners need to hear of a Savior. That's what Jesus was getting his disciples ready for and that's what he wants to get us ready for today. To live boldly and faithfully in the face of our spiritual enemy. So how are we to do all that? How are we to do all that? He gives us three broad directions and then tells us what, the, what it will take for us to fulfill those directions or well. So Jesus says, do this, and then he says, and here's how you do it. Do this, here's how you do it. Do this, here's how you do it. So what should we do? First, we need to live a consistent life. We need to live a consistent life. Life. Now, there's lots of things the Bible says about a consistent life. We could do an entire sermon series on that. But what does Jesus say in these verses about living a consistent life? First, he says that we need to beware the risk of hypocrisy. We need to beware of the risk of hypocrisy. In verse 2, Jesus has gathered his disciples together and he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, back in chapter 11, he just saw us what hypocrisy looks like. And here, it seems like Luke is saying not, not, not long after that, while they were still talking, after what's happened in chapter 11, these people are coming, he takes them aside and he says, look, this problem of hypocrisy is not limited to those guys back there. The people that, that I just excoriated, the, the, the problem is not just for them. The problem is not limited to them. Hypocrisy can be anywhere, anyone, even you. What is hypocrisy? Last week we saw that hypocrisy is the disconnect between what I say I believe and how I actually live my life. This is why James presses so hard in his short letter saying, yes, we're justified by faith, but I will show you that justifying faith by how I live my life. If, if there's not some evident fruit, then how do we know we're really saved? There can't be a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we should live and what we are actually doing. Hypocrisy is having the veneer of faith and godliness, but lacking any substance behind it. In Jesus' words, it's like seeing a gleaming whitewashed building, but when you open the door and go inside, it's full of rotting corpses. It's a crypt behind the clean walls. 
And notice what he says. He calls this hypocrisy the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, uh, here's, here's what, what I knew about leaven and about yeast. That's what we call it today. We don't really call it leaven. We call it yeast. You don't, you don't need a lot. You just need a little bit. You stick in your bread dough and it works its way through and causes the bread to rise. And here's what I remember. I can remember, remember watch Mr. Rogers and you had Chef Crockett and he was always saying, shh, 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 the dough is rising. The dough, you got to be quiet. Because, you, you know, some big loud noise, something disturbs and you get the flat cake which, and a, a loaf of bread. Nobody wants that, right? So, so that when I was growing up, that's all I knew about yeast and leaven. Well, then I got older and I actually watched my wife make bread sometime and, 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 and had a better understanding of how this works. The, the Jews would often eat unleavened bread, which means they didn't put yeast in and therefore didn't rise. It stayed nice and thin and flat. But those of us that are used to the bread of this culture, it always has a little bit of yeast in it. And it goes in and that's what causes, the, it spreads throughout the dough and causes it to puff up and to lift out and to be nice and, and fluffy and moist in the bread. Boy, I'm getting hungry thinking about it. But here's the thing. Jesus says when it comes to the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees is deadly because it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Just like a little bit of yeast you put in your, your bread dough. It doesn't take much before it starts infiltrating the whole body and it's all consumed with hypocrisy. And so he's looking at these, these disciples who he's now declared apostles, the leaders, the foundation of the church. And he says, you beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Because once it gets going, just a little bit, just once of you, once hypocrisy takes root, it's going to spread not just to you as leaders, but to the entirety of my people, the church that you are seeking to build. In a family, it might be a parent. In a church, it's going to be a pastor. But once you get hypocrisy going among God's people, it doesn't stop. It's not something you can, you can kind of seal off and put into a corner and work on it. It will spread like wildfire. It is a risk to the health of God's people. And so Jesus warns them, beware of allowing that attitude to pervade your life. Why? Because he also warns about the ruin of hypocrisy. The ruin of hypocrisy. And he talks about this in two ways. To begin with, he says it ruins you because it will eventually be found out. Jesus says in verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. You can try and hide your sin. You can try and cover it up even with religious camouflage so that the real you won't be seen. But you better be careful. You better be wary because if that's how you live, eventually you're going to be found out. You will be shown to be the hypocrite that you are, it will be the ruin of you. It might be in this life. It might be in this life, but even if it's not, you can't hide from the judge. The judge of all the earth who even now sees your hypocrisy. It will be revealed on the last day as we stand before God in judgment. More than that, hypocrisy ruins because it doesn't work for salvation. It doesn't work for salvation. Jesus says, therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the, in the housetops. Here's the folly of the Pharisees. They trusted more in what people thought of them than what God thought of them. And that mindset of working towards people thinking I'm righteous didn't actually ever lead to real righteousness. That's why hypocrisy fails. That's why it doesn't work to bring us to God. One pastor talks about a friend that he had who was the president of a prominent evangelical institution. And that this pastor said his friend, this president, said that they were, because they were committed to absolute purity among their people, they installed a sophisticated uh, internet 
filtering software that not only sought to, to block out pornography, but to track those that were looking at it on the school's account. It only took six months. And one of the senior vice presidents was caught looking at sites involving children. You think to yourself, he's a senior vice president. He knew about the software. He knew he was going to get caught. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Because he was a hypocrite. And hypocrisy does not produce true righteousness. The, the fear of being caught is not simply enough to stop us from giving in to our desires. We need, we need something else. We need what so many years ago Pastor Thomas Chalmers said was a new affection. We need a more powerful love, a more powerful desire that drives out and overcomes our sinful desires. We need a love for God that is greater than our love for sin, and a life of hypocrisy will never produce that. All it does is cover up the death and the sin and the corruption on the inside. But the gospel of Jesus Christ will produce that. The gospel of Christ will produce a new affection, because Christ says when we trust in Him, God gives us a new heart. So hearing of God's grace and His forgiveness of our sins, His cleansing us of our sins, that begins to work in us like a godly leaven. So that our, our love for God increases more and more and more. And the more that our love for God increases, the less, the, the less tasteful, the less delightful, the less appealing sin looks. And that's how we deal with sin. It's not by just trying to cover it up and hoping it will go away. It's by rooting it out at the heart level. And hypocrisy can never do that. This is why we must live a consistent life driven by the message of the gospel itself. But secondly, secondly, Jesus says that we need to also serve with a fearless heart. We need to serve with a fearless heart. You see, here's ultimately what gives, gives rise to hypocrisy. It's the fear of others. We fear what they think of us, which leads us to live in a way that is simply meant to please them. But that fear can run much deeper as well. It can lead us to fail to serve the way that Christ said that we should. Listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says his disciples should be fearless, first of all, of conflicts. Fearless of conflict. Think about what Jesus is saying here. It's astounding. He's getting them ready for what is to come. Maybe even now, as he sees the, the attitude of the, of the Pharisees and the scribes turn hostile towards Jesus. They've been invited over for this great dinner. And, 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 you know, the disciples who are itinerant preachers and they're not at all wealthy, you know, they're probably eating up all of the free food that they can get, you know. And suddenly Jesus just lays into them because he goes to reach for the food and he hadn't washed first. Isn't it interesting? Maybe the disciples had washed. We don't know. But he starts laying into them. Woe to you. Woe to you. Suddenly the dinner stopped. And now they, the disciples thought, oh, we're loved. We're well received. We're at this home for this fancy dinner. And now they don't want us here. Jesus gets up and he walks out. And they're happy that he's gone and we're with him. Maybe the fear was already starting to show on their faces. And, and Jesus heads it off. And he says, look, it's always going to be conflict. You're always going to have enemies. But you shouldn't be afraid of them. Because the worst thing they can do is kill you. Does that sound like an encouraging thing to you? 
I don't th- I'm sure that's not what they say at army training. Go out there, fight, because the worst thing they can do is kill you. I'm not sure that's an encouragement. But for Jesus it is. Because Jesus says there's something worse than death. There's something worse than death. You know what? I mean, it's not like it was something completely new, but, but ever since 9-11, there has been an increase of spending and concern to preserve this country and its citizens. We spend billions of dollars every year preserving our life, keeping ourselves from, from, from bodily harm. But Jesus says that shouldn't be the highest priority for the life of God's people. Yeah, it probably should for a national entity, the defense of its citizens. That's probably a good priority. But for God's people, that's not, that's not our first priority. Our, not, our first priority should never be, I need to make sure I stay alive. Because he says, there's something worse than death. He says, don't fear those that can just kill you. Fear him who can send you to hell after he kills you. Now, some people have read that and mistakenly thinks he's talking about the devil. The devil can't send anybody to hell. The devil is being sent to hell. God is the only one who ultimately holds the power of life and death and of eternity in heaven or hell. Just go back to Job. Satan is just livid and just wants to tear Job apart. But at every step, he's got to seek God's permission. And, and God's got him on the leash. You can only do so much. You can only do so much. You can only do so much. And it's the same way with us. Yet God might, God might unleash. He might, he might take back the defense and say, yeah, you can have him. You can take his life. But here's the thing. He can't ever take your soul. He, he, he can't ever send you to hell. Now, did you ever think hell would be an encouragement to you? Jesus says, don't fear your enemies because they can't send you to hell. And if they can't send you to hell in a real, ultimate sense, they can't hurt you. They, they can beat your body, they can destroy your body, they can abuse your body. But here's the thing, Christ promises a new body one day. A new body one day in His presence forever. Therefore, God is the one we should fear, is the one who can send us to hell. He's the one that we should fear. Can I just say that, you know, Jesus, Jesus gives that teaching... But, but I know we're not just all immediately jumping up and saying, great, that's it, convinced, we're out the door. We fear death. We shouldn't, but we do. But maybe you're like me, and, and, and you want sometimes just to live in this passage and say, I, I wish I could just make that my life verse. You know, p- people have talked about being so effective that you're... Your face is on a one-up poster in hell. That's how effective you are for the kingdom. And what I want to say is, yeah, that, that would be nice, but on my best days, on my best days walking with God, I'm not even satisfied with that. I, I, I want to be on hell's hit list. I, I, I want to be so in love with my Savior that sin is so unthinkable that they're having, they're having strategy meetings in hell and they're saying, we've tried this temptation, it didn't work. We've tried this temptation, it didn't work. We've attacked this person that he loves and it didn't work. And we've destroyed this part of the church and it didn't work. We've got nothing left. And Satan so says, sure, we can kill him. And so they put my name on the hit list. The reality is, I, I imagine I'm pretty far from that hit list most days. Why? Because I don't fear God like I should. That's what the Bible calls us to, to cast out a, a bad fear with a good fear. 
That's what we see here. Two different kinds of fear in this passage. The fear of God is something different than the fear of man. The fear of God is something different than the fear of our enemies. The, the, the fear of God is like when you go, the kind of fear that, that you have, the kind of sensation you experience when you, when, you, when you go out to the Grand Canyon and you stand right on the edge and then lean over a little bit and throw a pebble as far to the middle as you can. It's that kind of sensation that you have when you, you go out on a clear night and you stare up in the sky and it's ablaze with the northern lights. Like the sky is on fire above you. It's like when you go on the Maid of the Mist and it takes you as close as they dare get to the bottom of Niagara Falls. And you feel the, the vibration and the power thundering out from those falls. Or when you contemplate the glory of Almighty God in heaven. And you realize that you owe everything to Him. In His splendor and the glory of His beauty, He is is nearly unfathomable. And yet He has chosen to set His affection on you, to send His Son for you. And you realize that even the, 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 the breath that I'm taking in right now is His air. He is given to me for life. And, and I just, you just stand back in awe and say, God, how can I not worship you? How can I not serve you with my life? That is the fear of the Lord that Jesus calls us to here. When you have that kind of fear, then you can be fearless before your enemies. You can be fearless in conflict because you will be also fearless in your circumstances. You will be fearless in your circumstances. Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. At first it seems like Jesus might be contradicting himself. Don't fear, fear, don't fear. What's going on? Well, again, Jesus is clarifying that when when we have a right fear before God, then we do not need to fear our enemies. We do not need to fear any circumstance in which we find ourselves. For if we have put our confidence and our hope for salvation in Christ, then God is our Father, we is our children, and He cares for us. Jesus says, think about how worthless a few birds are. You get five for two pennies. But as Jesus says in Matthew, there's not one of them that falls to the ground apart from the will of His heavenly Father. It's a bird, a couple... Summers ago that flew into your deck window and snapped its neck and was a pile of dead bird on your patio after that? That didn't happen apart from God's providence. Spurgeon says when you, when you open your door in the summer and you, and you step in and you pull out some old blanket or something and all that dust just shoots across, he says every single particle of dust flying in its orbit is there because of the providence of a heavenly father who superintends the smallest particle of his creation. If God cares about birds, how much more does he care about you? You say, well, well, but how do I know he cares about me? Read the end of Romans 8. He sent his son for you. He he offered him up like like Abraham offering up Isaac, but he stopped the hand of Abraham. He said, no, you don't have to slaughter your son. I know you're faithful to me. You don't have to slaughter your son because one day I will slaughter my son for my people. I will give him over. He will be cut off. He will be cast aside and abandoned so that you need not be abandoned. You need not be cast off. You need not be cut away from God. If God is willing to give you Jesus, what more evidence do you need of his love and his care and his provision for you? And when you know that, 
When you have that experience where, where it leads you to fear Him, then you look at everything else and you're not tempted to say, in the worst of times, God, why would you do this to me? God, God, how could you let this happen to me? Instead, you say, God, I, this is painful. I'm going to need help getting through this. But I, I'm so thankful that you're my father. And that you don't, you don't mean this for my harm. You mean this for my good. So I can be confident. I can be fearless because I know that you love me and that you will take care of me. That translates into a life of service that looks like reckless abandon. That you don't give a wit about anything in your life, but what you're really saying is, I have supreme confidence in God. And if I can jump off this cliff to make a disciple, and Jesus told me to make disciples, he's going to catch you when I jump off that cliff. All this leads to the last thing, and that is this. We are to speak with a confident message. We are to speak with a confident message. Beginning at verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, what is this acknowledgement? What is this speaking? Well, first of all, we're called to speak Jesus' name. We're called to speak Jesus' name. He makes it very clear that we are acknowledging Him as the Son of Man, as the as the divine incarnate savior and that flies quite in the face of some popular thinking today in fact there was a few denominations have actually had to do, to do studies and massive even uh raised tones we know we don't think presbyterians get very excited but but you know some, some raised voices about this concern because some are saying you know you go to a muslim country and the threat is so real that the the the, the response could be so terrible now we can tell someone, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you don't have to call yourself a Christian. You can be a Christian, but just call yourself a Muslim. And when you go to wars with the mosque, when, when you lay down your prayer rug and you face Mecca, just pray to Jesus instead of Allah, and it'll be all right. Or you have some in our government who say, Christians should never be given visas if, if they are religious. If they're actually going to go tell people about Jesus, they should never be allowed visa entry into Muslim countries because they're going to start some international incident. We don't want that. Block their travel. Shut down missions. We don't, we don't need that problem for the U.S. We've got so many other things to deal with. But what does Jesus say here? What, what, what does he tell his disciples? See, here's the, here's the reality for us, most of us, most of us are never going to have to look in, in the face of a Muslim, the, the eyes of one who, who hates everything that we represent and would love to see our heads separated from our bodies on a live internet stream. Most of us will never face that. And so we don't need to fear that, that kind of thing. But weekly we face our neighbors who see us get up and go to church on Sunday mornings and come back in the afternoon. We face the lady at the checkout who sees us getting the Christian book at the store. We face the coworker who sees us bow our head at work and say a prayer over our meal. And the question is, are we going to be fearful and deny Jesus to, 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 to walk away from the little bit of evidence they've seen that we might have some inkling of, 
of concern for God or are we going to be bold in whatever that circumstance is that God has given to us and acknowledge our Savior? Are we going to speak confidently and clearly and specifically that there is no other name by which people may be saved than the name of Jesus? Not, Not just a vague God, not just a God of your understanding, but Jesus the one who came from the Father and died on a cross for your sins and was gloriously raised back to life. Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, Jesus himself will also acknowledge before the angels. You stand before heaven, you stand before that throne room described in Revelation 4 and 5 where there's thunder and lightning and peals and there's, there's glowing glory like, like the, the, the brightest gems you've ever seen. There's rainbows surrounding the throne and angels zooming around declaring and booming voices the glory of God. You're going to stand before God and He's going to say, why should I let you in, bro? What are you going to say? Probably nothing, but you're going to have Jesus step out. The lamb who was slain but now lives. The lion of the tribe of Juba, Judah. And said, he confessed me as Lord. He trusted in me as Savior. She, she bore witness to me in her life. She was purchased by my blood. Father, she is my disciple. Let her in. And he will, he will scoop down in his love and say, enter the joy of my rest. Good and faithful servant. But then notice Jesus talks about another kind of denial. In verse 10, he says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, this is one of those verses that actually worries Christians. The funny thing is, I've never heard a lost person be worried about it. You know what I'm saying? It's always Christians. Have I committed this sin? And, and, And the question is, what does it mean? Because it only shows up a couple of times. And it's not like it's a big theme. What, what is Jesus talking about? I, I, had a, I had a lady that came in after school and would teach a Bible study class in my high school. And uh, she was absolutely adamant that I could curse the name of Jesus in front of her and I would be forgiven. But if I uttered one blasphemous statement about the Holy Spirit, it was done. Could never repent. Could never go back. You might as well, you might as well just open up a a chasm in the earth and send me to hell because I had no hope. So when you come to a passage like this, what what do you do with it? Well, again, um, I know I sound repetitive, but context, context, context. There is the immediate context of the passage and there's the context of the whole Bible. What we see in the larger context of the whole Bible is the clear, consistent message over and over again, even from Jesus' own lips, repent and you will be saved. Turn away from your sins and you will be saved. But then we have the immediate context of chapter 11 that we saw in the last few weeks in Luke's gospel. And what have we seen here? Religious leaders like the scribes and the Pharisees who clearly see the power of God on display in Jesus. He is slinging demons aside like they're dirty laundry, casting them out of people. He's bringing sight to the blind. He's bringing healing to the lame. They know it's the power of God, but they deny it. Because Jesus isn't the Savior they want. And so they say, well, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's Satan. And Jesus says that 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 kind of blasphemy will not be forgiven. Why? Because it shows that you have so hardened your heart, you will never turn to faith in Christ. 
If, if you are so depraved to us to see with your own eyes, to, to behold the very power of God on display through Jesus, but say, no, nah, that, 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 that can't be what it is. It's got to be Satan's power. There's no hope for you. You've condemned yourself. And, and therefore, if you are here and you worry, have I, have I committed this sin? Here's the thing. If you're at all worried about it, if you're at all tender to your sin, it shows that you haven't committed it. You're not running from God. God is drawing you to himself. It's only those who, who feel sincere remorse for their sin, not just the consequences, but the, the sin itself that shows God's spirit is at work and he's not forsaken you and you're not cast off and there's hope of forgiveness. Again, Jesus brings this up here because it's just another way to deny him. Not really his disciples, but pointing out to the scribes and the Pharisees and what they have done. The question is, what about us? Are we prepared to speak confidently because we need not fear anyone? Notice that we can also speak confidently because Jesus promises we will be, in on a, we will be able to speak by the Spirit's direction. As we speak, we are to speak of Jesus' name and we are to speak confidently by the Spirit's direction. He says in the last two verses, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And here's another verse that's so often out of context. Jesus is not saying, don't read a book on how to evangelize. Jesus is not saying, don't memorize Scripture. Jesus is not saying, don't think about theology or with wisdom how to answer the world. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, don't be so paralyzed with fear about what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to say? How am I going to respond that you never get out and open your mouth? That's what he says. That's the, that's the point here. Go out and open your mouth. And, 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 when, and when people, specifically here, the religious leaders confront you and say, so what, 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 what are you saying what about this Jesus? Then the Holy Spirit is going to take what you know and he's going to put the right words in your mouth. He's going to give you those words to say. He says, don't become so paralyzed with fear that you never actually go out and do what you're supposed to do, which is proclaim Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Present the salvation message of God through Jesus. No, don't worry. Jesus says, my spirit will put the right words in your mouth at the right time. John Knox was a man who studied with John Calvin in Geneva for a while, and he was there because he'd fled Scotland to escape persecution from the church there. But while he sat under the preaching of the great reformer and heard the, the gospel of grace unfolded week after week after week after week, he began to become emboldened. He no longer feared the church that was seeking to, to kill the Protestants in Scotland. And in fact, with renewed zeal, he left Calvin and Geneva and went back to his homeland with this prayer, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Allow me to take the gospel there and see it permeate the entire island or just take my life. The result was a man who showed up on the shores of his, of his homeland with passion before kings and queens and peasants alike. Never backing down from the truths of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, even in the face of death. In fact, you can go to his grave marker and here says these words. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. May it be so of us as well. God, we're so thankful for your word. For we know, Lord, that apart from its life-giving power, 
Lord, we would be weak, we would be frail, we would be fearful of the world in front of us. So, Father, we pray that this encouragement that we have seen, that we have heard, perhaps this conviction would, would, would strike deep within us, God. That you would remind us of what you have done for us in Christ and how you continually pour out your love and your care for us, that we would not fear anyone. God, that we would be unafraid and unashamed before a watching world. That we would bring you glory and honor and praise and magnify the name of your Son as we are faithful to live confidently, speaking confidently of him. Father, all of us need in one way or another to hear this message, either to be confronted with it and see our lives radically changed or just to be reminded of it, to have, to have a little more fuel poured on the fire of our hearts. So God, we pray that whatever we need, you will, you will supply. God, that you will allow your spirit to remind us and press in on us the verses that were most helpful and most needed in our lives. And God, individually and corporately, you would continue to grow this church. You would conform us to be the body of Christ. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.